Um, uh, before we go any further, let's, uh, let's all pray. And um, let's just bow our heads if you feel comfortable. Pray with me too, um, whether it's in your head or using words. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, Lord, on this earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done here at Encounter Church, here in our lives. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debt just as we have also forgiven our debtors. Let us not fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the prayer that we just prayed, the Our Father, we prayed a lot about God and to God. We prayed that his name would be hallowed. We prayed that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, and that he would give us our daily bread. And we also pray that he would forgive us and that he would deliver us. In this prayer, as you can see, it's all about God, or it's all directed to God, about God doing something, about God's activity. It's all about God except for one part. And it is this part where it says, forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. Everything else is about how we relate to God, about how we worship and make his name glorious, about his will coming. But there is this reference to human activity, to what we do in this prayer that we pray. While we pray that God would do something in this world, we also refer in our prayer that God should forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Because the only human activity in the Lord's prayer is, to, is for our debt to be forgiven, we could see that human forgiveness is evidently important to humans. It's the only human activity in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus was emphatic about the need for human forgiveness. The community that followed Jesus practiced forgiveness. There was this one church in Corinth that had practiced forgiveness. And you can see the verse here, 2 Corinthians 2, 5-9. It's also listed in your notes. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to a church. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. In this church, and this house is a church because back then they had a lot of house churches, they practiced love in the church. They practice forgiveness. Elida's laughing because sometimes she doesn't like my heart drawings. So I think I did all right this time, better than I usually do. She, she actually wrote everything out. I don't write as nice as her. But anyways, um, yeah, so they, at this church, at this house, the house of God, somebody had grieved the church, had done something to hurt the church. And this had grieved also the Apostle Paul. But instead of hating this person, instead of hating this person that brought much grief, the church practiced forgiveness and consoled him. 
The church forgave and consoled this person who had hurt the church so that the person would not be overcome by excessive sorrow, so that the person would not suffer excessively. In Ephesians 4.32, it's a verse that we've heard before. In this verse, the Apostle Paul echoes the New Testament teaching about forgiveness. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Paul urged the church that it would forgive one another, just as God in Christ had forgiven them. As God forgave, Christians should forgive. We forgive one another in the manner that God forgave us. And again, Colossians, another letter to another church, Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other. That's what the verse says. Bear with each other. We carry each other's burdens. And we also forgive one another. We forgive as our Savior forgave us. Paul's words about forgiveness, it really stems from Jesus' teaching. Jesus had some strong words and parables that reveal the nature of forgiveness. And to a great extent, Jesus' teaching of forgiveness focuses on the fact that as Christians, as God's representatives on this earth, as people who bear the name of God, we are supposed to reflect God's nature. Because God is merciful, we as his representatives, we must also be merciful. There's a, par a powerful parable on human forgiveness in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And I encourage you to open it up as we will be reading it all. Um, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And it's a, an extremely powerful parable. And it's a story that Jesus gave to reveal how, how it was so important to forgive because we have all been forgiven by God if you are a Christian. And the story goes like this. I hope you have it open. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It starts like this. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. In some versions, it says talents instead of bags of gold. And it said, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. 
Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then Jesus ended, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So, there was this king, and I'm going to attempt my best. Well, this is going to be a throne, okay? It's actually just a chair, and he has a scepter. Um, there was this king, and we know that he was collecting his dues, and I'll give him a small little crown. And a slave went to him, and he was collecting all his dues, all his debt, all the money that people owed him. And one of the slaves that went to him, and some version says 10,000 talents. That's what a slave owed the king. A talent was a measuring unit for the weight of silver or gold. And 10,000 talents was about 665,000 pounds. So just imagine that. That's, that's a lot of gold. And some scholars have said that if it was gold, then this slave owed the king about 12, 000, $12 billion, not thousand, billion dollars to the king. $12 billion to the king. It's a lot of money. It's basically, and, and the slave acted like he would be able to pay it back. He, he cried, have, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. The king was probably like, yeah, right. You, you'll pay me several billion dollars? Yeah, right. That, that, that seems impossible. But out of pity, the king forgave the slave. The king forgave the slave his billion-dollar debt. And that's kind of what happens with us. We, we owe the cosmic king. We, we sang a song about Jesus being the king. We owed God a debt that we could not pay. We had a sentence that was over billions of dollars. But Jesus paid the sentence on our behalf. And because he did that, God, just like the king, forgave our debt. Well then, Jesus continues in this parable, and there's another scene. The slave is free to leave the king since he didn't owe the king anything anymore. And outside of the palace, the, the slave was confronted by another slave, a fellow slave who owed the other slave a hundred denarii. So there are two slaves, and this is the same slave that was forgiven and I'll put them, I'll give them hands, arms. Um, and this slave only owed $800. $800. That's all that the slave owed the other slave. $800. It doesn't compare to the billions of dollars that the slave owed the king. So the slave confronted the other slave and said, and grabbed him by the throat and said, pay what you owe. The fellow slave fell on his knees and said the same thing that the forgiven slave had said. He said, have patience with me and I will pay you. But the slave whom the king had forgiven refused. The slave was not reflecting the character of the king. He instead pressed charges and had his fellow slave arrested. The king heard about this, called the slave he had forgiven and called him a wicked slave. And the king sent the slave he had forgiven to be tortured until he would pay off his debt. 
Jesus ended with Matthew 18.35. You could see it up on the board. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We have been forgiven and people approach us for forgiveness. This is not to say that we, that we go around forgiving everybody just randomly. No, no. But when we have the opportunity to demonstrate God's forgiveness, just as he has shown it to us, we must be willing to forgive. If you do not forgive who have sinned you, you have failed to represent God, to represent the King. You bear the name of God in vain. We are children of our Heavenly Father. We refer to God as our Father. And as His children, we must reflect the character of our Father. If we do not represent our Father, how, how can we say that we are His children? Children are like their parents. And if we are God's children, then we must reflect God's forgiving nature. This isn't a matter about earning God's forgiveness. It's not about, oh, if I forgive, then I would deserve God's mercy. No, God, since the very beginning, is merciful. The king was merciful since the beginning. But through forgiveness, we are representing him and understanding what it cost God to forgive us. If the slave had forgiven, he would have understood what it cost the king to forgive. Forgiving creates within us the capacity to truly receive and appreciate God's forgiveness. If the, king had, if the slave had forgiven, he would have an idea. Whoa, this costs me something. That must mean that it costs something for the king to forgive me. That's what happens when we forgive. We, we gain that capacity for forgiveness. The parable of the unmerciful servant shows us what it means for us to pray. Forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. Each time we pray the Lord's Prayer, which I hope is often, each time Christians, each time we pray the Lord's Prayer, God's community, we are confessing that we have received God's forgiveness and that we are giving it every day. And we pray this prayer every day about forgiveness because every day we fail. And because we fail every day, we need God's forgiveness each day. We fail God each day. We, we become guilty each day. So we pray for forgiveness each day. And we recognize that it is a gift of God to receive God's forgiveness and to be able to, because of God's forgiveness, have this gift of breath every day. We have that because God has forgiven us. God's forgiveness must change everything we do, everything we say, everything we think. How we interact with fellow humans has changed. Those who are unable to forgive others, and I, I want you to pay attention for this. Those who are unable to forgive others, who cannot let go of their anger, have not understood the unconditional forgiveness of God. Those who truly understand God's forgiveness, they, they, they understand, I, I've been forgiven, therefore I can forgive others and make all relationships new. Just because they can forgive just as our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. We forgive over and over again. And it doesn't matter how many times the other party has offended us. We forgive. The Apostle Peter, he, he tried developing rules for forgiveness. We read it in the beginning of 
our, the parable. He asked, how many times should I forgive? And Oscar also read this too. How many times? He, he was trying to make a rule. And he said, seven times? And Jesus was like, no, no, 77 times. 77 times, that, that's a lot. The point with Jesus' response is that we shouldn't establish rules on forgiving. God doesn't put a limit on how many times he will forgive us. I know for a fact that he has forgiven me over 77 times. And because we are representing God, we should be willing to forgive as many times as it takes. God doesn't put a limit on how many times he should forgive us, and neither should we. We value relationships. Therefore, we will forgive in order to restore relationships. Now, let's talk about specifics of forgiveness. Forgiveness will not occur if you don't truly process what happened. Elida spoke about this. But if you don't process what has happened, your, your relationship will not be restored. The wrongdoing should not be accepted for what it is. It's wrong. We're not making it better. But we recognize what it is. It's wrong, and then we forgive the wrongdoer. We have spent time in the Bible, and we, and we need to do that. But I, I believe that God also reveals His truth through nature. So we, we can find truths about forgiveness when we look at nature, at the observable world around us. And I think we could look and observe God's truth when we go to, say, the park and you see two kids playing within the sandbox and we see a boy get mad and storm off with his toy truck. He cries out to the other kid, I hate your guts and I'm never going to talk to you again. I think we've seen children get into fights all the time. But it's so interesting because when we see these children after 10 minutes, the kids are playing again laughing and enjoying the day. We see this and we might admire it, wondering, how do kids do this? How can they be at each other's throats one second and then get along so well in the next? I think we can conclude that they choose happiness over being right or feeling sad over themselves. The kids could have just stayed in his feelings, think that the other kid is horrible, but instead he forgave so that he could have fun with his friend. Humans are social beings. We need each other. And intrinsically, we would rather repair relationships than hold a grudge. Most of us want and would like to forgive, but we don't. Because what the other party does, it, it, it can really hurt us. It, it really hurts. And when it hurts, and we want to forgive because we want to reflect our Heavenly Father, we, we might just not forgive because, it's, because of the pain is just so strong. Or sometimes, instead of really forgiving or refusing to forgive, we, we opt for this cheap type of forgiveness. Sometimes we opt for a cheap type of forgiveness because we think that we only have two choices, forgiveness or unforgiveness. But no, it's, it's more deeper than that, much deeper than that. We don't just have the option of forgiving and not forgiving. Here are the options, and forgive my handwriting, it might not be the greatest. The first option that we have is not forgiving. Not forgiving. The other option is cheap forgiveness. The third option is acceptance. And the last one is genuine, genuine forgiveness. 
And again, forgive my handwriting. So it's kind of hard to write down there so low, but genuine forgiveness. <clears throat> so we have different responses. We have not forgiving, cheap forgiveness, acceptance, and genuine forgiveness. I think we should all strive to have at least acceptance and genuine forgiveness. But sometimes, and I think we should all strive for genuine forgiveness, but sometimes genuine forgiveness is not possible. So all we could do is accept. Acceptance helps you value yourself. You own your health. You own your, your headspace. Acceptance helps you stay true to yourself and recognize that what the perpetrator did, that it was actually wrong. Acceptance helps you stop seeking revenge and forgive yourself for your own failings. Acceptance is when the boy who left the sandbox comes back in the sandbox if he chooses to. And the other person, the other boy does nothing to right the wrong he has done. The boy can opt for no relationship with this person. The boy doesn't have to dwell on the injury. He doesn't have to minimize it either. The boy can be himself and be open to genuine forgiveness if the other boy chooses to do just that. Look, in the Bible, God's attitude is always merciful. But some people just don't ask for mercy. They don't repent. They don't recognize their sin or their need for forgiveness. God is respectful and he accepts the reality. That's acceptance. We have an attitude of mercy. We want to forgive everybody, to have genuine forgiveness. But genuine forgiveness takes time and it takes both parties. The best thing we can do when the other party is unwilling to ask for forgiveness is to just accept. Forgiveness is not just up to us. It takes two. Of course, we do all that we can so that forgiveness and restoration are possible, but it takes two. Forgiveness is a weighty thing. True forgiveness is not easy. And because it's so hard, and because people don't know about genuine forgiveness or acceptance, people choose cheap forgiveness, which is the second one, or refuse to forgive the first one. They choose that because they don't know about acceptance or genuine forgiveness. Cheap forgiveness is when you are desperate to preserve the relationship or, or, or are so afraid of the perpetrator that you forgive the person. Forgive. This type of forgiveness is premature, superficial, cheap. It's cheap forgiveness. Refusing to forgive is just when you want to punish the person. You might think that forgiveness is a weak thing. It's a weakness. Not forgiving makes you feel powerful, that's what you think, or that you're in control. But it often makes you mad, cuts you off from life. Forgiveness is hard, but if you're going down the list, if you're getting into acceptance, if you're accepting more, if you're looking and hoping for genuine forgiveness, you are growing as a person. But don't stay in cheap forgiveness. Try to move forward. Cheap forgiveness is, is compulsive. It's, and, and, when, and when you refuse to forgive, you just hold on to your anger. When you forgive cheaply, you don't process your anger. You just let it go without even thinking about it. Cheap forgiveness is dysfunctional. It makes you give the illusion of closeness, but nothing has really been changed. Nothing has been resolved. With cheap forgiveness, you silence your pain and fail to recognize the harm that the other has done to you. When God forgives a sinner, 
He knows that the sin is very serious and that it caused a lot of pain and grief. And he dealt with that pain. He dealt with that pain through Jesus Christ. He processed that pain. He didn't just forgive and forget without processing the pain. No, he didn't offer cheap forgiveness. No, it was genuine forgiveness. Cheap forgiveness is cut rate. And you might do it because you just want to avoid conflict. You're compliant and dismissive of the pain because you just want to avoid these arguments or these discussions. Therefore, you just give cheap grace. There's a story about this woman named Marcia. She had parents who always argued with one another. She said that it was frightening to hear them fight. Sometimes the parents would throw tables and the father would get drunk and chase his wife with a gun. Marcia would lock herself in her room and would just avoid her parents. She hated them, but she said that she had forgiven them. That's cheap forgiveness. She's now not good at anger, at anger, with anger. She's afraid of feeling anger because she doesn't want to end up like her parents. She doesn't allow herself to feel angry because she offered cheap forgiveness. She didn't process everything that was taking place. Another story about cheap forgiveness is from Kathy. Kathy was married to Jack. Jack, he drinks too much, cheats on her, lashes out at, it, with, at Kathy verbally and sometimes even physically, but Kathy gave cheap grace, cheap forgiveness. She said, I think of myself as a love junkie. And that's why she stayed with Jack. Sometimes some people just offer cheap forgiveness so that they don't stay alone, so that they keep some of their relationships. Cheap forgiveness makes excuses for abuse. Cheap forgiveness makes you passive aggressive. You might say you have forgiven somebody, but then lash out sometimes. You're, you're angry. You make subtle comments that are hurtful. You, cheap forgiveness is terrible. It, makes, it might make you feel righteous because you have forgiven, but man, don't be so quick to forgive. I know it sounds weird, but forgiveness, true forgiveness, is a process. Don't just forgive so you, that you can move on. No. Cheap forgiveness takes away the possibility of developing a deeper bond with someone. You're, you're just being surface level. Understand yourself and understand the pain, the situation, and accept what is taking place and give true forgiveness if that's possible. That's harder, but it's better. It's better than cheap forgiveness or refusing to forgive. People who refuse to forgive were typically abused at a young age, and you want to empower yourself so you think, if I don't forgive, I'll be stronger. But note that God, the Almighty, the All-Powerful One, He forgives. And that does not make Him weaker. He does not become weaker when He forgives. He actually becomes stronger. But you might think that forgiveness is weakness because you grew up in a family that held grudges their entire life. Here are some questions to consider whether you, you refuse to forgive. Do you get insulted or offended easily? Do you have too many confrontations with people? Do you jump to conclusions or take things too personally? Do you hold on to grudges forever? Do you never find an apology as good enough? Do you dream of crushing your opponent? You know, not forgiving makes you feel invulnerable, invincible, like, like nothing can ever affect you. But that's a lie. 
We are human, and refusing to forgive is just prideful. Recognize that you are human, that you can suffer, and recognize that the perpetrating party is also human. The party messed up, but he is human. We need to practice life-giving habits like acceptance and genuine forgiveness, not cheap forgiveness or refusing to forgive. And let's talk more about acceptance. Acceptance is the best response to someone who hurts you but is unavailable or unrepentant. It is based on a personal decision of your pain to understand your injury and carve out a relationship with the offender which works. It's not forcing the offender to ask for forgiveness, but it is being open and desiring the offender to repent, to ask for forgiveness. Acceptance gives you freedom. You receive power to decide how to live your life instead of wasting time thinking about the past. Acceptance makes peace with the past. You accept it. Psychologist Janice Abraham Springs gave 10 steps for forgiveness, and you have it on your notes on the back. Um, I've included them in there, so if you want to check it out. 10 steps. Step one, you honor the full sweep of your emotions. Through the Holy Spirit, you, you analyze what you are feeling and what happened. You might replay the event and, and you accept it. You might say, I feel hurt. This did hurt me. It really did. And, and this thing, it hurt me for a reason because it was wrong. Step two. You give up your need for revenge, but continue to seek a just resolution. You know that God will take care of revenge if it is necessary. Vengeance is his. He'll take care of it. But you understand that you need to seek a just resolution. How can you best reflect God? Step three, you stop obsessing about the injury and re-engage with life. You slowly stop obsessing over the incident. You start living the abundant life God called you to live. And you begin to re-engage with life. Step four, you protect yourself from further abuse. You, you know what you experienced was wrong. God gave you these emotions so you could feel and sense and so you could be alarmed if something is wrong. So you should try to protect yourself from suffering again. Take the necessary steps to avoid being hurt as you were hurt. Step five, you frame the offender's behavior in terms of his own personal struggles. You understand the offender. He or she is a sinner. It does not excuse the offender, but it does explain why the offender acted as he or she did. Step six, you look honestly at your own contribution to the injury. Sometimes you don't contribute anything at all, but sometimes you do. Maybe you angered the person. Maybe you failed in some areas. Again, we're just trying to understand the situation by seeing the context. We're not trying to shift blame that it was my fault. No, but we are trying to identify what happened. Step seven, you challenge your false assumptions about what happened. Maybe you had this false picture of what actually happened. You should consider the possibility that your view may be wrong. Your depiction may be wrong. What really happened? Again, we're not saying that you weren't hurt, but you're thinking about what actually happened. Step eight, you look at the offender apart from his offense, weighing the good against the bad. You see the person as the person actually is. Step nine, you... Carefully decide what kind of relationship you want with him or her. Is it worth returning or not? You decide. Step 10, you forgive yourself for your own failings. If you messed up or contributed to the incident, you forgive yourself. This is acceptance. And this is good. Of course we want genuine forgiveness. But if acceptance is all we could get at the moment, that is good. 
And it's a process. Moving towards this is good. There's a story about a man named Sam. His father would always ignore him. His father wouldn't be there for him. So as a child, Sam would get into trouble so that he could get the attention of his father. He would do drugs, get into crime, just to get attention from his father. As an adult, Sam confronted his father in, about how he was so insensitive. He asked, how could you be so insensitive? And his father responded, what did I know? Sam saw the shallow response of his father and began to value himself and, and what he was likable about himself. Instead of, about, instead of his dad ignoring him, he, he just saw that his dad wasn't even aware of the thing. Sam stopped focusing on how he was neglected and started to focus on himself and his family. Sam began to understand and accept his father's limitations. He discovered that his father had abandoned him, that his father's dad had abandoned him. So that's why his father didn't even recognize these things. Sam also recognized that as a kid, he had a terrible temper. He, he never forgave his dad, never gave genuine forgiveness. But he accepted the situation. He wanted genuine forgiveness. So before Sam's father died, when Sam's father was at the hospital, Sam visited the hospital and you know, he, he valued some of the good qualities of his father, but he wanted to forgive. So he asked, Dad, it would help me get closer to you if you acknowledge how alone I felt as a child and how you were never able to give me much of yourself. And his father looked at him and said, Get off the cross. Stop nagging at me. Sam wanted to forgive his father, but couldn't. His father was incapable of grasping the harm, the hurt that he had done to his son, Sam. But Sam accepted that and stopped agonizing over it and continued with his life. Acceptance is awesome. And sometimes that's the best choice. But if there is an opportunity to give genuine forgiveness, then do it. And then we can have genuine forgiveness. I want to end with something that has helped me think of forgiveness. I've mentioned it before when I spoke about the Lord's Prayer during Luke's series, the Luke series that we had. But I think it's a great illustration. Uh, as you can see here, there's a money bag and the idea that I want to convey with that is emotional wealth similar to monetary wealth you can only give money if you have money in the bank and you can only really forgive if you have been forgiven that's what we've been saying you can't teach someone to give mercy no only forgiven people can forgive it's only when you have received mercy that you put mercy in the bank. It's only then that you could give mercy. And as Christians, as people who are not perfect, but who have been forgiven, who have received God's mercy, we should have mercy in our bank to share with others. If not, if we don't have that, then we really need to spend time with God and knowing His mercy. And there's a perfect story, and it's the last story that I'm going to tell that really reflects this. Back in World War II, there was this hero whose name was Louis uh, Zamperini. Um, and I hope I get his last name right. I probably didn't. Yes, I did. Good. <laughs> Zamperini. Louis Zamperini, he was a hero back in World War II. And a movie was actually made honoring his life. The movie is called Unbroken. Louis was on a war mission over the Pacific back in 1943. His plane crashed into the ocean, and most people who were on that plane died. He survived, 
after, survive, after spending 47 days afloat in shark-infested waters. Louis and one other survivor survived the sea, but once they arrived on land, they were captured. And for two and a half years, Louis was imprisoned and suffered beatings and humiliation and torture. After the war, Louis, he returned home, and like many veterans, he suffered post-traumatic stress, which led him to become an alcoholic. His wife, Cynthia, lost hope for their marriage. All Louis did was dream and plan how he would return to Japan to murder the bird. The bird, he, he was a Japanese sergeant who had assaulted and tormented Louis in the camps. And one night, when Louis was dreaming about the bird, he heard a scream which woke him up. When his eyes opened, he saw his hands locked around the throat of his pregnant wife. Cynthia, he couldn't handle this pain. She couldn't handle this pain, so she, so she filed for divorce. Louis was going to lose his wife and his child. But he couldn't stop drinking. He couldn't change his self-destructive behavior. The pain that he suffered when he was imprisoned, it, it tormented Louis so much that he, he couldn't leave his bitterness that he, the, so that he could change. To, even, if it, even if he could save his family, he, he couldn't change. In the fall of 1949, Louis's wife, Cynthia, heard about a young evangelist coming to town. This evangelist, he was super popular. His name was Billy Graham. He would have these large services that were stadium full, and thousands would profess that they would, they would follow Christ. Well, Cynthia, he, she attended one of these crusades, and she came home. She became a Christian. And she immediately went to Louis, returned home and told him that she did not want a divorce anymore. She told him that she had a spiritual awakening. She wanted Louis to go with her to another service. At first, Louis resisted. He said no. But after days of Cynthia inviting him, Louis gave in. Louis went to a Christian service. At that service, the evangelist Billy Graham honed in on human sin. Louis was indignant. He, he said, I'm a good man. But as soon as he told himself that, he knew that that was a lie. Several nights later, Louis went to another Christian service and gave his life to Christ. Immediately, Zamparini's life changed. He was delivered from alcoholism. And even a more important note than that, Louis felt God's love flood into his life and realized that he was able to forgive all who had imprisoned and tortured him. The shame, the hate, the misery all vanished. His relationship with his wife, Cynthia, it was renewed and deepened, and they were happy together. And in the, in the October of 1950, Louis returned to Japan, and he spoke through an interpreter at the prison where many of his former camp guards were now imprisoned. And he spoke about the power of Christ's grace to bring forgiveness. And to the prisoner's shock, he embraced each of them with a loving smile. God had filled Louis's emotional bank. Therefore, Louis was able to give forgiveness to his torturers. You know, not, not everything is instantaneous like it happens with it happened with Louis. It happens that God immediately, it can happen that he immediately delivers you from hate and alcoholism, but sometimes it's just a, it's a process. But as we see with Louis, and I'm, I hope that you're seeing this, God has the power, Jesus has the power to heal 
deep wounds. And through the Spirit, through the love of God, Jesus changes hearts. And it might look sudden like it did with Louis. At one service, everything changed. Or it might take some time. Either way, there is hope. There is hope for you to heal. And there is hope for you to forgive. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Louis Zamperini was literally tortured. And in his inner hate and his, and his inner hate, anger and fear had stopped him from loving and serving others. There's this God-sized hole in all of us, but God can fill it up. Otherwise, that hole will grow, that darkness will grow, and it will eat you up and make you bitter. And you will not be able to live that God-given life that he has called all of us to live. But I pray that today you would encounter Jesus' restorative forgiveness. So as we all, let's all stand up and let's all pray and then we'll worship. But I really want you to spend some time just understanding God's forgiveness for you and the ability that he has. If he could heal Louis, who, who suffered two years and was tortured, if he could heal him, he could heal you. So let's all pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting us with us today. And I pray that everyone here may reflect and know that you are a forgiving God. We have sinned you. Let us be reminded of the message of the Bible, the message that changed Louis' life. And it is that we are sinners. We have failed. We are not perfect. We are guilty. But God, I pray for your forgiveness. We owe a debt, but I pray like the servant prayed. Have mercy upon us. Have patience with us. And Lord, we know just like the king, you will forgive us. Lord, fill our bank with mercy. Let us know that you forgive us over and over again. And let us be able with that forgiveness, be able to, to forgive others, to offer genuine forgiveness. If, and if that's not possible, let us, get, let us understand and accept acceptance, have acceptance in our mind. I pray that we may know your forgiveness. If anyone here, Lord, has not asked for forgiveness in a long time, may you hear their prayer, hear them ask for forgiveness. May they say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Forgive my debt, as we have already forgiven others. In the name of Jesus, we all pray. Amen.